It's good to see everybody this evening. And if you're here for the first time this evening, we have been going through the book of Nehemiah. We are just getting started. We're up to chapters 2 and 3. We'll be covering both tonight. Uh, the video session that I did last week, I had them cut it off after point one. I was hoping that we could get all of chapter 2 covered. Uh, it was just too long. And so I'll kind of summarize chapter 2 from last week. But tonight I really want us to jump in to chapter 3. Okay? To chapter 3. And tonight we'll be looking at the topic uh, all for one and one for all. All for one and one for all tonight. In last week's video I talked about his burden of prayer. When, when we have something on our hearts, there's a need that we see or a need that comes to our attention. How we need in the church desperately to be a people of prayer. So oftentimes we just jump into things and we can make a mess out of it. But we need to go before God in prayer. We need to ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, and knock and keep on knocking. And we see that Nehemiah is definitely an example of that. When he found out about the need that Jerusalem was, was in dire need, he went to God, and as I pointed out in the video, there was four months that he was praying. Four months elapsed, and we know what Nehemiah was doing during that four months. He was consistently and constantly praying without ceasing. And during that four months of his praying, God was not only working on his heart and showing him everything that needed to be done. God was clarifying to Nehemiah what he was going to need to do once he got there. But God was also working on the heart of the king, preparing the king, right? And so God is working at both ends of the spectrum there. And so we, we saw that uh, we're not only to pray when we have these deep burdens, but we are to pray according to the will of God. And I gave the example of the Lord's Prayer, how we can use the Lord's Prayer as a pattern in our own praying. Uh, not simply reciting the Lord's Prayer, but the categories in the Lord's Prayer. God's name, that God's name would be exalted, uh, that God's will would be done, and that His kingdom would be advanced. And then after praying for God's name, God's kingdom, God's will, we can, of course, pray for our own needs, our daily provision, uh, strength against temptation, and forgiveness of our sins. And so again, we see Nehemiah, we see the example of Nehemiah doing that. Nehemiah is not praying for his own agenda, his own kingdom, his own will, his own name. Nehemiah is praying for four months for the glory of God and the name of God to be exalted. And so, again, uh, the need to pray, turn burdens in uh, to prayer. And then uh, we see also that when faced with great challenges, we must allow our plans to be born out of prayer. And that's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah received the clearance to rebuild the city. He gave the king a definite time when he would return. That's a great leadership principle. 
He gave his superior a very definite time. Now, in this case, it ended up being 12 years that Nehemiah went and was over this building project. And I think that shows how much God had brought favor to Nehemiah in the eyes of the king. Uh, Nehemiah asked for letters. Again, uh, folks, I'm just kind of setting the table, kind of reviewing last week before we jump into tonight. He asked for letters to the surrounding governors, granting that he would be granted the right of passage. Uh, Nehemiah was anticipating any problems that he might face. And he was trying to come up with answers to those problems before they even developed. Again, where did he get the wisdom to do that? Through that four months of prayer. And then he asked for letters giving him all, all of the materials that he would need uh, to do the job. So he's not only anticipating problems, but he's also anticipating the provisions that he's going to need. The king grants all of his wishes. Folks, I want you to write down Ephesians 3.20. You know what the Bible says in Ephesians 3.20? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. What Paul is saying is God is able to do even far above and beyond anything that we could ask or think. And we see God doing that in the case of Nehemiah. God answers all of his concerns, all of his prayers, and all of his provision is taking, taken care of. Uh, when he gets there, he didn't, he didn't uh, engage in haste. He took time to take in the big picture, to gain understanding. He rides around the city privately at night and just really absorbs what all uh, needs to be done. And then in verse 17 of chapter 2, he shares his burdens with his people. He says, folks, just look at us. This is not what God wants for us. God wants so much more for us. We need to get busy. And so what we see Nehemiah doing is trying to move people along on God's agenda. Folks, that's what Christian leaders need to do. Try to move people along on God's agenda. It's not your agenda. It's not my agenda. It's God's agenda. You know, I could see a Sunday school teacher saying to his or her class, we know that God wants us being a people of the book. And so I want to challenge you this year to read entirely through the New Testament. And every single Sunday before class, we're going to talk about what we've learned this week. Moving people along to God's agenda. Or that Sunday school teacher telling their class, we know that God wants us engaged in missions. And so here's a couple of things we're going to be doing as a class together that we can join God on His mission. Moving people along to God's 
agenda. And that's what Nehemiah started doing after he had done all of this planning. What we're going to see tonight, all for one and one for all, he gets everybody involved. Look at verse 1. In verse 1 of chapter 3, then Eliashib, the high priest, I ought to have somebody read this chapter. Maybe I ought to have Gavin McInnes read this chapter. It's hard name, hard name after hard name after hard name after hard name. Then he, uh, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Benah, repaired. And next to them, the uh, Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joida, son of Pashia, and Meshulam, the son of Besudiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah and laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Malatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired next to him Hananiah one of the perfumers repaired and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall next to them uh, Rephiah the son of Hur ruler of the half district of Jerusalem repaired next to them Jedidiah uh, son of Haramoth repaired opposite his house underscore that phrase opposite his house let me just highlight a few things down through there at the end of verse 12 you see the phrase he and his daughters and then at the end of verse 23 you see opposite their house and then again at the end of verse 23 beside his own house and then in verse 28 each one opposite his own house the next verse says the same thing, and 31 says the same thing. So all down through this chapter, the list of names and the section of the gates or the walls that they repaired. We're going to talk about all this tonight. Wendell Berry may have been right when he said, the present national ambition of the United States seems to be unemployment people live for quitting time they live for the weekends and they live for their vacations and finally they live for their retirement he said in America less than 25 percent of the workforce say they are working at full potential 
Research also indicates half of those employed do not put effort into their job over and above what is required to hold on to it. In addition, 60% of the United States job holders admit that they do not work as hard as they used to. Ironically, though, Americans are working more hours than ever before. According to a recent report issued by the International Labor Organization, American workers now average almost 2,000 hours per year on the job. That translates into 49 and a half hours or weeks at the office. This means Americans now work three and a half weeks more per year than Japanese workers and six and a half weeks more than the British. Sadly, the ILO's 600-page report noted American productivity is going down while the number of work hours is going up. We need to remember that the Bible tells us to work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Folks, as you read through Nehemiah chapter 3, you may wonder what in the world can be preached out of Nehemiah chapter 3? What in the world can we study out of Nehemiah chapter 3? It's just a running list of names and where they made repairs to the city gates or the walls. But you know this chapter says volumes to the church today, doesn't it? We see that we're to be workers for the Lord. Bible commentator Warren Wearsby has given a quote made by a British humorist who said, I like work, it fascinates me, I can sit and look at it for hours. But you know, when it comes to the work of the Lord, there's to be no place for spectators or self-appointed advisors and critics. There's always room for workers. Proverbs 14.23 says, in hard work there is profit. Now what we're going to see tonight, we see that when attempting great things for God, everybody must assume a share of the responsibility and the work. First point I want you to write down tonight, division of labor is the key to any great work for God. Division of labor is the key for any great work for God. Now as we've seen, the book of Nehemiah is primarily concerned with the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned how important walls were to ancient cities because without walls, you would be subject to attacks. And so this is a critical work that Nehemiah is involved with. Now, in the midst of his prayer, in the midst of Nehemiah's prayer, God commissioned him to go and put his prayer into action. And what we saw Nehemiah beginning to do at the end of chapter 2 was to rally everybody together to get started. And so in chapter 3, they actually get started. And they get started with the gates. 
There's ten gates mentioned here, and they're mentioned in a counterclockwise order as you go around Jerusalem. Each gate had to do with a specific function of the city. And so each gate had its own purpose. Again, there's ten of them. There's the sheep gate. This was on the northeast corner of Jerusalem and would have been an entry point for the sheep brought to the temple for sacrifice. Even today, if you visit the old city of Jerusalem, it's not uncommon to see a sheep market held close to the old sheep gate of the city. And then there's the fish gate. Fish would be brought from Tyre along the coast of the Mediterranean and also from the Sea of Galilee. And they would have brought fish for the market in through that gate. Then there was the old gate, what was simply called the old gate, the northwest corner of the city. And then the valley gate, excavations in 1927 and 1928 turned up this gate. Then there's the dung gate, okay, where waste, animal waste, solid waste would be hauled out of the city and dumped in the Hinnom Valley. Then there was the fountain gate and then the water gate because the water gate led to the main source of Jerusalem's water, the Gihon Spring. Then there was the horse gate led out to the Kidron Valley. Then the East Gate, perhaps this is the predecessor uh, of the present Golden Gate. And then there's the Inspection Gate. All of these were the gates that had to be repaired. And what does Nehemiah do? Gets everybody involved. Everybody was assigned a part to do. Now, folks, isn't that a lesson for the church today? Here's your part. Here's your responsibility. Everybody has a part. Everybody has a responsibility. Now, before we're said and done tonight, we're going to turn to the New Testament. We're going to read a lot more about this, okay? But I want you to notice in verse 1 and verse 22, both, uh, you see that the spiritual leadership was involved. It says then, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. Ministers are to train people to do the work of the Lord, Ephesians 4. But ministers are to roll up their sleeves and work too. I'm not going to challenge you to go out and share your faith and win somebody to Jesus if I'm not willing to go out and share the gospel. I'm not going to challenge you to go on a mission trip if I'm not willing to go on a mission trip. Spiritual leaders are to train the laity to do the work of the Lord, Ephesians 4, but that doesn't mean that we sit back in an ivory tower. We get involved with you. And that's what we see the spiritual leadership doing here. Along with them getting involved, 
the division of labor. Who else do we see? We see the government officials involved too. Verses 9 and verse 12. And then the man mentioned in verse 18. Nehemiah was involved along with this other individual. These leaders didn't stay in an ivory tower. It's important for leaders to set the example. Folks, among the ancient Sumerians, the king himself would carry bricks in building projects. The king himself. And so here in Nehemiah, we see the leadership involved and working. In verse 12, we even see this man, I underscored, he and his daughters, I underscored how he got his children involved. That reminds me of when the Persians destroyed the walls around Athens. It was decreed that the whole population of the city, men, women, and children, should take part in rebuilding the wall. In verse 8, we see everyday men and women that got involved. Goldsmiths, perfume makers, those engaged in specific trades. Verses 17 and 26, we see servants getting involved. Levites were servants in the temple. Maybe sort of like current deacons. And so again, what do we see here, folks? We see everybody getting involved and taking part. There's one exception that we read about in the text. Did you pick up on the one exception? Verse 5, yes. What happened there? The nobles. What's it say about them? They wouldn't stoop to do the work. They disdained manual labor. They thought they were above it. Folks, it's interesting when you come down to verse 27, we see that the men of Tekoa had to do double duty. You know why I think they had to do double duty? Because their nobles wouldn't do anything. What does that tell you? When somebody won't do their share, what do others have to do? Double duty. So when somebody doesn't do their workload, they put hardships on everybody else. Or what they were supposed to do doesn't get done, and it hurts the overall work. Now, I want you to notice something else about this work. The work was no doubt very dear to them because I want you to underscore something in verse 10, verse 23, verse 28, and verse 30. What do you see in all of those verses that's pointed out? They made repairs near their homes, right? That would have been something they felt passionate about. The portion of the wall or the gates that was close to their home. Do you want your home being secure? Of course you do. So we got people involved where they would have had the most interest and would not have lost their motivation. 
We also see that attitude was important. In verse 20, look at, uh, find verse 20. We see uh, passionate. It's not verse 20. I've, I've mislabeled the verse. But anyway, we, we see a passion, a zealousness involved. That's important. In Romans 12, if you were to turn over to Romans 12 and read that passage about spiritual gifts, along with each gift mentioned in Romans 12, it's going to say something about the attitude that goes with that gift. And so he says, if giving is your gift, Romans 12 says... Give generously. If leadership is your gift, lead diligently. If showing mercy is your gift, do it cheerfully. In other words, don't just do what your giftedness is, but do it with the right attitude. Do it with a zeal. Attitude's important. Now, secondly tonight, I want you to see that we all have work that we can do for the Lord. When we think about Nehemiah chapter 3, I want you to put it in a New Testament context. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and just kind of hold your spot there. Because you're going to see there that we all have work that we can do for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12. We know that the Bible tells us that we are to serve. How can we serve? We can serve by using our spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are important to the church. They're, they're so important, they are listed in at least four passages in the New Testament. What are those four passages? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 4. 1 Peter 4, good, almost. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. At least those places where spiritual gifts are talked about in the New Testament. And how every member of the body of Christ has a gift and is to use that gift for the building up of the body. Think of the building up of the body. Think of that metaphor for the church, the body. What's that metaphor tell you? Comparing the church to a body. Different parts. They all function together. One's, you have an eye, you have an ear, you have hands, you have feet, you have a mouth. Different parts of the body that functions together. 
Folks, when you became a Christian, immediately you received two gifts from the Lord, automatically. What's the first one? The Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says, at the moment of your conversion, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's not a second touch that comes later, some point down the road. No, 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 no. You get, you get the Holy Spirit at the moment of your conversion. Now, obviously, you're to be filled with the Spirit constantly, many times down the road. But you get the Holy Spirit when you're born again. That's one gift. What's the second gift you get? You get a spiritual gift. Exactly. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. 1. And, and again, folks, make the connection tonight with Nehemiah 3, okay? How Nehemiah got everybody involved where they were passionate. And I'm simply using the New Testament to show you how the New Testament says in the body of Christ, in the church, we are to do the very same thing. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. It's been well said that education costs, but but ignorance costs more. Education costs. But ignorance costs more. That's true, isn't it? Don't be uninformed. Don't be ignorant about your spiritual gift. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Is it leadership? Is it teaching? Is it showing mercy? Is it helps? Is it giving? Is it administration what's your spiritual gift read those four passages pray about it we have on file in the church office some spiritual gift tests now a test is not an end all it's just a it's just an inventory test that kind of helps you narrow down helps you discover probably what your gift is But there's no substitute for praying about it, asking God to show you. Asking Him to reveal it to you. Studying the Scripture. What do you enjoy doing and what what do people maybe commend you for doing? Pay attention to all of that. Don't be ignorant about your part in the body. And use your gift to magnify the Lord. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, when he talks about spiritual gifts, there's an emphasis on variety. Look at what he says in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. The church is like an orchestra that needs all of the instruments playing together to be in tune and well balanced. Then he points out in verse 11 that spiritual gifts are given according to the sovereign wisdom of God. He says all these are empowered 
by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. You have the spiritual gift that God wants you to have. And then in verse 7 we see that spiritual gifts are given for the good of the body. That means that every time God adds somebody to his church, we ought to be asking what part does God want them to play. Your gift is not for your personal enjoyment. Your gift is for the good of the church. Then we see here that gifts are not to be discounted. Verses 14 to 20 in 1 Corinthians 12. Don't discount your gift. Saying, oh, you know, so-and-so's got such-and-such gift. I don't. Woe is me. No, again, God has given you the gift that he wired you to have. If God wanted you to have somebody else's gift, he would have given you that. Don't discount your gift. Don't discount somebody else's gift either. There was once a little girl who went home crying after parts for a class play had been given out. She didn't think her role was visible enough or important enough. After drying her tears, her mother took off her watch. Her mother had a beautiful gold watch. She took it off, sat down with it, and showed the little girl the face of her watch, how pretty it was, and, and all that was going on there. And then she turned the watch over and, and she popped the back off of it and she asked her daughter what she saw inside of it and the daughter talked about all these little wheels and gadgets. And the mother said, you see that beautiful part of the watch? That beautiful part of the watch would be absolutely nothing without these little wheels and cogs and all these things fun you don't see all of those things but those things are critical to the functioning of the watch that's how gifts are spiritual gifts you may not have one that's very visible but you may have one as Paul goes on to say in 1st Corinthians 12 that is even more needful for the body Don't depreciate your gift. Don't depreciate others' gifts. The spiritual gifts of church leaders are to promote growth in believers toward Christ's likeness. Ephesians 4. Let me read Ephesians 4 to you to show this. Again, the point that spiritual gifts of church leaders are to promote growth in, in members towards Christ's likeness. Paul says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs 
to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So church leaders help church members to discover their gifts to grow towards Christ's likeness and stability in the body of Christ. And then one more thing about spiritual gifts before we move on to our third point tonight. Spiritual gifts are to promote the glory of God. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 10 through 11. Peter says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Spiritual gifts are to promote the glory of God. So don't be ignorant about your gift. Discover it. After discovering it, develop it. You see, folks, spiritual gifts have to be developed too, right? Just because God gives you a spiritual gift doesn't mean that you don't have to work at it. Develop it. Deploy it, use it, discover it, develop it, deploy it. And it's not for you, it's for the sake of the body. God gave you the gift he wants you to have. Don't depreciate it and don't depreciate others' gifts. And use your gift. To bring glory to God. Okay? Folks, again, why is this important? Why does it tie in with Nehemiah 3? Because again, what did Nehemiah do? Got everybody involved doing something. And got everybody involved doing something that was near and dear to them. That was they were passionate about. And where they were most interested. I'm sorry? For the glory of God. That's right. Okay. Thirdly, serving is the way to be great in God's eyes. Serving is the way to be great in God's eyes. Write down Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and verses 33 to 37. I'll read that story for you. It says, They came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing in the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. To be great in God's eyes, you don't have to be rich. You don't have to be powerful. You don't even have to have the best education or the best position. But what do you need? You need to be a servant. And folks, that's something that we can all do. We can all have a servant's heart. Jesus said to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be a servant. You know, I wonder on Judgment Day, after it's been determined who's truly born again and who's not, I wonder who is going to be shown as being truly great and, and not. There's going to be some surprises, isn't there? Folks, we have to not simply talk about serving the Lord. We've got to get out there and do it. Just like Nehemiah got people out on the wall doing it. We got to get out there and do it. Express Personal Services, an, an employment company based out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, they've provided temporary help. They're a temporary help agency, and they've provided temporary help, they say, for some pretty unusual jobs. They've placed workers to chase deer off of airport runways for $8 an hour. They've placed workers to pour out thousands of cans of rancid beer down a drain for minimum wage. But one of the most unusual placements came from a company in Redmond, Washington. It was a couch potatoes dream job. Three people were paid $11 an hour to appear to be busy. So that when people walked in the front door of that business, the business would appear to be flourishing and everybody busy and that they would appear to have more workers than they actually did. And they paid people $11 an hour just to be there and do some busy work that would make the company look good. Folks, Nehemiah didn't need people simply looking like they were busy. He needed people really working. Is that a job you want? Hmm. Nehemiah didn't need people just looking like they were busy. He needed people busy about serving the Lord. 
And that's what Christ is still looking for in His church. Right? How would you assess your own participation in the ministries of the church? Do you know what your gift is? Do you care? If you know what your spiritual gift is, how, could you, how would you assess tonight that you're working to develop it? What have you done recently? Let's say you're a teacher. Have you gone online and watched any online teaching tips? Have you done anything? What ha whatever your gift is, what have you done lately to try to enhance it and develop it? And how have you used it? Based on Jesus' definition that greatness comes through service. Are you great in the kingdom of God in that sense? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Folks, there is a lot that we do in life. We can all admit it. That when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not going to have one bit of eternal value whatsoever. Think of the time and the opportunities that each of us have wasted. And it's going to be like wood, hay, and stubble all burned up. No value. But whatever we do for the Lord remains. It is not in vain. All for one, one for all. Get in there, find your place. Take your place. And work hand in hand with others who are doing the same. No one person, no small group can do it all. It takes everybody. It takes you. It takes me.